and uh, that song Gratitude, uh, I love that song. I, you can make a whole sermon off of uh, this, that song Gratitude. Uh, it reminds me of a uh, passage where it says, well, the Lord, uh, Lord doesn't care for a burnt offering or anything else that we have to have. What he does want is a, a broken heart that's face down for him. And that song reminds me of that every single time. Uh, today we'll be starting out in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll be kind of sticking around between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Uh wanted to uh, get into the second part of uh, revival there, because I had a lot last week, and I had a lot more that was on my heart to share, but I didn't want to cram it all together, because I don't think it would do justice to God's Word and to... Uh, to his message. But I want to look at one of the biggest revivals in the Bible, which is found in Nehemiah, which if you've never read this book, I would encourage you to do such because it's rich in so many ways. It shares a lot about the heart of God and his heart to be united with us within our lives, and especially within our times of worship. Basically, it expresses how God wants his family and he wants to be with his family and keep his family united. A uh, little bit of back history on the uh, early part of the uh, book. Basically, the people of Israel, they've been in captivity with uh, Babylon for many years. Fact, long enough, the entire generation does not know anything other than being in captivity. So they've kind of come content in that. Because uh, they don't know any better. Just kind of like uh, nowadays. My kids don't know anything better than what we've got going on. And pre-internet and pre-everything on TV. Pre-cell phones and all. But Nehemiah, he was the king's cupbearer. And he felt strongly by the Lord to ask the king himself if he could visit his homeland and rebuild the temple. Which, that could have been a death sentence just asking to do that. And it's important to remember that Nehemiah's job, uh, that's the king's most trusted man. That's the man that's tasting all of his wine, all of his food, make sure it's not poisoned. The king literally trusts this man with his life. So the fact that he was not only granted permission to go back to uh, his homeland to rebuild the temple, but also given the king's resources himself to do such, uh, which is a God thing right there. So we'll be starting out in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, All the people gathered together as one man in the area in the front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel on the first day of the seventh month. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of men, women, and all that could listen with understanding in the area in front of the water gate. And he read aloud from sunrise until midday to the men, women, and to those who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a raised platform, which they had made for this purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, because he is above all the people. And he opened it, all the people stood up, and when Ezra had blessed the Lord, as the great God, all the people responded, Amen, Amen, by lifting up their hands as they bowed their heads. 
They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is after Ezra's been able to come back and rebuild the temple. And basically the walls are back up, the gates are back up. It's time to get to business and start doing what you're supposed to be doing within the temple, within the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the water gate is going to be on the east side, kind of towards the lower part of the city. Uh, just below halfway point there. I've got a picture if anybody wants to look at it afterwards. But the cool thing about the opening part of this passage is for seven days straight, six hours a day, Ezra read from the law. And like last week when I shared the four elements of a revival that I was looking at, this is, this seven days, this is a heart that seeks after the Lord. I mean, obviously they're seeking after the Lord in a lot of things. And to be able to come together for six hours a day from morning to noon for seven straight days, I mean, you can't say anything else but they're seeking after the Lord. And a lot a lot of these folks, especially the younger ones that have never known any better, this this first time they're really hearing the law. So I'm going to uh, move on to uh, verse 8. Let me go on through 8 through 12 right quick. They read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation, and they gave the, sen- gave the sense that the people understood the reading. Then Nehemiah the magistrate, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were teaching the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Stop mourning and weeping. That was because all the people wept when they heard the heard the words of the law. Then they said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet drink, and send portion to those who have nothing whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. But do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Hush, because today is a holy, you should stop being so sorrowful. And all the people went to drink, or went to eat, to drink in the sin portions, and to enjoy a great celebration because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They heard God's word and realized their need for Him and their sin. And interestingly, until that day, many of the returned exiled Hebrew people, they actually didn't know Hebrew at the time. Because of the overruling of the Babylonian uh, Empire and the common language had been changed to Aramaic already, they had an entire generation of people that had not been educated in the Hebrew language. And all it takes is one generation of education being changed for that to happen so for quite a few of those younger folks that was the first time that they had ever heard the scriptures and have somebody the levites and some of the other leaders break it down to them to where they could understand it that was life-changing so ezra and the other levites read the law but also at the same time they translated it to the to the people.
people too. And the ones that did know Hebrew that were listening were able to translate to their uh, younger family members what was being said. They also realized that it was the Lord's day and that yes, it was good to acknowledge your sins, but it was even more important to rejoice in the fact that the Lord who cleanses them of their sins loved them. They had something to celebrate that they were able to return back to the city of Jerusalem, that they were able to return back to the Lord. And just like with the, with the parable of the, uh, of the lost son there, his father celebrated when the son came back and they're experiencing that the Lord celebrating that they're coming back. That no matter what the situation they were in, that they belonged to God and that they had something to celebrate and something to have joy about. Something to sing praises about. Uh, I'll be moving to Nehemiah chapter nine, verse one here in a second. But but it was it was interesting to me that the the Levites who were the who were the priests were telling the people, and Ezra and Nehemiah were telling the people, stop mourning right now, and let's celebrate the fact that we have come back together. That it was a holy day. It was a, supposed to be a day of feast anyways. But they continued on the uh, next day with this uh, major revival. So we're about a week into uh, their new revival. They've come back into the city. The walls are back up. The gates are back up. They've spent an entire week, all seven days, six hours a day, getting into the law singing praises, and repenting of uh, generational sins. So they pick back up in the verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, and there was dirt on them. The offspring of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners, and then stood and confessed their sins the iniquities of their fathers. They stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for the fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. That's even more than what they were doing the week before. So for six hours, they were confessing their sins and repenting from their foreign idol worshipping and and being separated from the Lord. And then for another six hours, they were worshiping and confessing some more. It's a 12-hour church service. I don't know about y'all, but at some point, I'm sure somebody had to be guilty of going, hey, y'all, we've missed the lunch rush at Logan's. That was six hours ago, and now we're going into the supper time rush hour. Yes, I was taking some good meds when I wrote part of this. But seriously, <laughs> but seriously, somebody might have been... We complain about having a couple hours going on. Not us in particular, but just in general. But the people were so consumed and enamored with what the Lord had, they didn't care about that lunch rush. They didn't care about what others might think. They didn't care about what the job front might think. They just wanted more and more of God. But the opening verses of chapter 9 also shed light to how serious they were taking their repentance and how serious they were seeking after the Lord. 
They went straight to fasting and prayer, which is why they were able to go 12 hours and not worry about a lunch rush. 12 hours of fasting. 12 hours of seeking the Lord and hearing his word spoken. 12 hours of singing praise to the Lord. That was 12 hours that they spent that day. Seeking the Lord. Most of the tent revivals we have around here, you, it's good to last for four or five days. And you're in there for about two hours. And then you're going home and you come back the next day. And everybody's happy. At least most everybody's happy. So I'm sure somebody's upset somewhere. Somebody's got to complain about something. But seriously. But something else in this chapter that stood out uh, was between verses 5 and 37. It was a public prayer that uh, Ezra spoke over the entire people. And on top of that public prayer, it was their entire history, which, mind you, they had a whole generation of people in there. They actually did not even know their own history. That it, it was important for them to know where as a nation, where they had come from and where they had gone and why they were currently in the boat that they were in. So I'm going to get another swig of coffee and then I'm going to get into that. Don't laugh at me. Thank y'all for bearing with me. Says, then the Levites, Joshua, Ketamel, Bene, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Habadiah, Shibaniah, and Pathathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Let them bless your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur to the Chaldeans. And you gave him the name of Abraham and found his heart faithful before you. And you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezerites, the Jezreelites, and the Gargasites, to give it to his seed. Indeed, you have fulfilled your words because you are righteous. When you saw the affliction of, the, of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You enacted signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of this land, because you knew how arrogantly they had acted against him. Thus you made a name for yourself, as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they might pass through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and cast their pursuers into the deep, like a stone into empty storm waters or into stormy waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to light the way up for them. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just requirements, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. You also revealed to them your holy Sabbath, and by the hand of Moses your servant set in place for them precepts, statutes, and laws. You gave them bread from heaven, 
for their hunger and brought water out of the rock for them for their thirst. You told them to enter in order to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly and hardened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of your wonders that you performed among them. But they hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. It did not forsake them. Even when they had made themselves a molded calf and said, This is your God that brought you out of Egypt and committed terrible provocations, yet you and your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them in the way, nor did the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothing did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You gave them kingdoms and nations, and you divided them as boundaries. They possessed the land of Shine, which was the land of the king of Heshbon, and land of Og, the king of Bashan. Their descendants you increased like stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land, which you had promised to their fathers that they would enter and possess it. So the descendants went on and, pro- and proceeded, uh, I'm sorry, and possessed the land, and you subdued for them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands, with their kings and their peoples of the land, to do with them as they would. They captured unassailable cities and fertile land. They possessed houses full of all goods, Wells dug, vineyards, olive gardens, and fruit trees in abundance, so that they ate, they were filled, and became fat, and they indulged themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they became disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, killed your prophets who had warned them to turn back to you. But they committed terrible provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who afflicted them, And when they cried out to you in time of their affliction, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercy, you gave them deliverers who delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. But after they had rested, they again did evil before you. Therefore you abandoned them to their hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You warned them in order to restore them again to your law, but they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments. They sinned against your ordinances, which would enable man to live if he would do them, stubbornly turning away and becoming belligerent so that they would not hear. For many years you endured them and warned them by your spirit, your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the land of the people of... Gave them to... Gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for the sake of your abundant mercy, you did not completely destroy them nor forsake them. Indeed, you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, let not all the hardships since the time of the kings of Syria until this day 
that has come on us, our kings, our princes, and our priests, our prophets, and our fathers, and on all the people who seem insignificant to you. You are righteous for everything that has come upon us, and you have acted faithfully while we have done wickedly. For our kings, princes, priests, and fathers have failed to keep your law and did not obey your commandments and your warnings, even when you confronted them. For whether in their kingdom or in their abundant goodness that you gave them, or in the spacious and fertile land that you set before them, they have neither served you nor turned away from their wicked deeds. So here we are, slaves today. The land that you've given our fathers for eating its fruit in the goodness, behold, we have become slaves on account of it, because its abundant produce belongs to the king whom you have set over us due to our sins. They have control over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. That's a long prayer, but it's... It's an important one. So chapter 9 ends with all of them signing an agreement to live a life that honors God. And chapter 10 ends with the agreement and an oath not to forsake the house of the Lord. One of the things that stood out from that prayer and from their their timeline is something that we share in common. See, as many times when we find ourselves in trouble, just like the old Hebrews, we cry out, the Lord rescues and before we know it, we're back to the same mess. Just this time, worse off than before. It reminds me of uh, John chapter 5. So when Jesus went to the temple, he found a man by the healing pools. This is going to be the northeast side of the temple uh, city there. But he was unable to walk, so he's waiting by the healing pools. And he couldn't get in there. So he asked, asked man, do you want me to heal you? I was like, yeah. So Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk on. And the guy did, and he was healed. Also happened to be on the Sabbath day, so the church leaders knew this man was lame. And instead of fussing about being more concerned about uh, how is this man that was paralyzed walking, they chose to fuss at him for carrying his bed because it's on the Sabbath. And that also meant work. But it gets down to verse 14 where uh, Jesus finds the man and tells him afterwards, says in verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have become whole. Sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. And if we read on, we see that the church leaders wanted to kill Jesus because of everything that had just transpired. But the point I wanted to make was when we repent of something, get healed, and return back to it, we always, always, always find ourselves in a deeper mess than we were beforehand, just like the Israelites. This is also why we must daily live a life seeking after the Lord. It's also why I find that very long prayer in chapter 9 of Nehemiah so important. It's important to repeat back to the Lord the journey that he's had with you. And as a people... And him as their God had shared, while also praising him for the journey and taking ownership of the shortcomings and combining that life with their history. To me it's important because if we don't know where we came from, then we can't tell where we're going. And if we can't see the mistakes of our fathers and learn from them, then we're going to be ignorant and bound to repeat them. 
that said that that major revival that they had right there in Jerusalem, in the book of Nehemiah, there was an entire generation that knew knew nothing else than what they, they had experienced in that last 20, 30 years of captivity. They didn't know their their history. So they were very susceptible to repeating the same history of seeking after different gods and following different idols instead of seeking after the God that had made a covenant with their bloodline. So the same elements of revival that we were looking at last week, they're all found in what is known as one of the oldest and largest revivals ever. The only one that has anything to compare with it is the revival found in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 2. So when we hear the word revival, that there's a revival going on in such and such place, just look to see. Is the word of God being shared? Are there souls returning to the Lord? Are there new souls just now meeting the Lord? Is there joy and celebration? And lastly, are lives being changed permanently? Because there's a lot of people that will see a revival going on and the first thing they want to do is criticize it, even though they've never been over there to check it out. It can't be a real, real revival because it's not going by X, Y, or Z. The problem with that is the Lord doesn't always go by our, our X, Y, and Zs. He kind of goes off his own will and timetable there. So that's about all i got on that. Father God, I just thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for for your word in the in the book of Nehemiah, Father. And just the richness of everything in it. I pray that your word would uh, saturate our hearts, Father, and that only your word would be remembered. I thank you for your love and for your patience, Father. And for your mercies, and even when we find ourselves in trouble, even if it's of our own making, that you're still there to help us, Father. I just ask that uh, you just continuously set our hearts on fire, that we'd seek after you and everything that we do. In precious, holy name, amen. amen.